Today is the first day of Holy Week. It starts with Palm Sunday. And we're going to talk about this today. But as we move forward on into the week, we're going to observe and celebrate here on Wednesday night a Seder meal, Passover meal. And um, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be accompanied with a teaching that's showing all the different elements and how Jesus is revealed as Messiah. It's going to be powerful. And then on Thursday, uh, historically in the church, uh, on the church calendar, it's called Maundy Thursday. You know, as a kid, I always thought it was called Monday Thursday. <laughs> it's like, no, Maundy Thursday. Maundy comes from the Latin word mandatum, which, of course, is where we get the English word mandate. And, and it means a new command, a command. And so on Maundy Thursday, what we acknowledge and observe and celebrate is when Jesus was observing the Passover meal with the disciples that last time, he said to them in, in John chapter 13, he says, a new command I give to you, that you would love one another as I have loved you, that you would love one another. And, and they, these guys have been hanging out with Jesus for a few years now. But Jesus says, hey, uh, I'm going to give you a new command. And it's something that you've seen demonstrated, but now I'm going to articulate it. And this isn't, this isn't optional. If you're going to be my disciples, if you're going to be my followers, this is how you do. This is how you be. This is how you follow. Love one another the same way that I have loved you. And the funny thing is, is that they think that they know what he's talking about. But they don't know yet. They don't know yet the fullness of what Jesus was talking about when he says, the way that I've loved you. Because the cross was still before him. And so it begins to unfold for them. And so uh, many people on Maundy Thursday, they uh, observe that time with a foot washing ceremony. Um, I don't do, I don't like that um, personally. I don't want I don't want to mess with your feet, and I don't want you to mess with mine. But I have done foot washing before, and I, and I will do it probably again in my lifetime, but it's just not my favorite thing. But the whole point of it is that we serve one another. We love one another through serving one another just as Jesus did, just as he took the lowest position in the household and took upon him the bowl and the towel, and he washed the feet of the disciples, which has far more context to it uh, than we can imagine in 2023 as we wear our nice shoes and socks and we don't get our feet dirty. And then after Monday, Thursday, we're going to observe Good Friday, and we are going to have a Good Friday service here, a Tenebrae service, where we're going to re remember and honor our Lord's death. And then, of course, that's followed by Holy Saturday, which traditionally is a day of silence where you just allow yourself to feel what the disciples felt. The confusion, <laughs> the emptiness, maybe the hopelessness. The, the like, I, I thought Jesus was the Messiah, and yet he just was defeated. But then on Sunday, we are going to celebrate Easter, which is the pinnacle of all Christian celebration, right? Because we as Christians, we don't just identify with the death of Christ. We identify with the resurrection of Christ. Amen? Which is why on the following Sunday, on two weeks from today, we're going to have baptisms. 
which is the, the, the outward ceremonial illustration of our old life dying with Christ and our new life being raised with Christ. Amen? So if you've not been baptized or if the Holy Spirit's stirring in you to be baptized, go to our website, sign up for that. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be good. And, and, uh, and so why is it important that, that we re-enter these stories year after year, decade after decade, century after century? That's what the church has been doing. We've been in, these, in this habit, in this rhythm, on the church calendar, that every, every year we get to this week, and it's, well, we know exactly what the passage is going to be. We know what the text is going to be. Why, why is that important? And, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, have you guys ever seen, like, man-on-the-street interviews? Like where they go, it's, you know, some, someone's in an interview or they have a microphone. They go and interview somebody and they give them like kind of a softball of a question. Like I remember this one time I was watching an interview. Um, this guy was in the Washington Mall. And so people are there to do the Washington, D.C. thing. And they're interested in, you know, American history. And so he's like, here, let's just ask some people some, some questions. And the guy says, hey, um, can you tell me who the first president was? And the guy's like, uh, George, uh, George W. Bush. I'm like, no. Um, or like, when was the Declaration of Independence signed? And they're like, um, it was 19-something, right? I know. It was like 1908, 1901. No, I'm sorry, 1776. And, and, you, and you see Americans and, um, who don't know basic history, and it, and it begins to make sense why our nation feels like it's becoming weaker and weaker. And, and America is not like in a downward tailspin because we don't know trivia. It, it, it's because we don't know the truth. And when you're not educated on the truth, then you can't walk in the freedom that truth brings, Right? And so this is why we re-enter these stories year after year, decade after decade, century after century. It's because these stories, these accounts, they're not just someone else's story. They're our story. If you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, then these are your stories. And we need to know them, and we need to understand them, and we need to walk in the spiritual freedom that this truth brings to us. Amen? So today, let's come back to the Palm Sunday story. This is, this is where we're intentionally re-entering the story of where Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And, and this is the beginning of the last few days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. And these are just the last few days here. And it's interesting that in the book of John, in Gospels, in the Gospel of John, the Palm Sunday story doesn't happen until chapter 12, but it's of 20 chapters. Chapter 12 of 20. In Matthew, it's chapter 21 of 28. In Mark, it's chapter 11 of 16. In Luke, it's chapter 19 of 24. In other words, there's so much of what the Gospels tell us about the life of Jesus, and most of the what they have to say happens just within this last week. Guys, I've been in the book of Matthew 
um, <laughs> and just devouring these, these like last seven, eight chapters, the last few days. And with the context of these are the last few days before the cross. And you read these chapters with that context of like, these are just the last few moments, the last few days that Jesus has with the disciples before he goes to the cross. And there, it carries a whole nother weight. And you start reading these things through that lens and you're like, whoa, whoa. So let's do this today. Let's stand together and we're going to read this Palm Sunday passage from Matthew's gospel. And here's what I like. Today, I'm going to read it aloud to you, and I invite you to just stand there and listen and take it in because it's a little bit of a lengthy passage. Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mountain of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is what was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Praise God. We have a Jesus who's in the healing business. He was then, and he still is today. Amen. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. If you're going to study a passage of the Bible, you, you shouldn't probably just open it up and start reading and then go, what does this mean to me? What you probably ought to do is, is you need to do some noticing. You need to do some noticing. 
So I'd like for us to do a little noticing first before we ask the question, what does all of this mean? The first important thing that we need to notice in this passage and in this story is that there's a crisis. That's the context for this entire incident. Verse 1 says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. So right, right before this happened, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 20 and also in Mark chapter 10, that, that two blind men, one of them that we know in Mark was named Bartimaeus, uh, they, they heard that Jesus was coming down the road and they cried out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And so there was this whole interaction and this exchange that happened, and it's a beautiful and marvelous thing, and Jesus ends up healing them. And you might say, okay, well, that's great. That's wonderful. You know, another miracle on the way to Jerusalem. But what, you, what we need to realize is what this means leading up to the triumphal entry. Because this is the first time that we know of that Jesus was publicly given the messianic title. That when, the, when these blind guys cry out, Son of David, that, that was, that was a, that's a code word. And for you and I, we may not understand that, but for all of Jerusalem, they know, because they know their history, they know who the first president was, and they know when the Declaration of Independence was signed, right? They know what Son of David means. And it's this title for a messianic king that had been predicted for centuries. Saying son of David is the, basically the same thing as saying, hey, the ultimate king of the world. That's a big deal. That's a real big deal. And so for the first time, somebody cries this out, hey, ultimate king of the world. And Jesus looks at them and says, Yes, that's me. I will answer to that title. This was a big deal, and I can imagine like people are like jarred a little bit. I mean, it might have been rolling around in the back of some of their minds, certainly the disciples. I can imagine the disciples going, <gasps> like, he, he did it. He acknowledged it, finally. <laughs> You know, because for quite a while now, we know that the disciples are wanting Jesus to declare himself as king. Like, come on, Jesus, let's do this. And they knew about his power, and they knew about his miracles, and they desperately wanted him to proclaim it, and finally he does it. So, so I don't know, maybe are, are you connecting the dots of why this would be a crisis? Because when Jesus publicly proclaimed himself to be a, the Messiah, that means that he now either has to triumph and take the kingship, or the other option is he will be crushed by Rome and all the other Jewish authorities that hate him. Those are the only two options. When you, when you say, ultimate king of the world, and you say, yep, that's me, uh, the Romans aren't going to have that. And neither are the other Jewish authorities who hated Jesus. So when, when the disciples hear the blind men say, son of David, 
And Jesus answers, yes, that's me. The disciples knew this is on. It's on like Donkey Kong. Like it's go time. Like there's no turning back from here. And I imagine they're probably thrilled and terrified all at the same time because they knew it was do or die. It was do or die. They finally knew Jesus was either going to triumph or be destroyed. They knew that this was the final sprint to the top. And so this is the first thing that we've got to notice. This tremendous tension that's happening right before Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This is a crisis of sorts. The second thing that we need to notice is this, is that Jesus is the one who actually arranges and orchestrates his triumphal entry. Like, it, it wasn't just random. It wasn't just, like, by happenstance. M- many of you know that the writers of Scripture were, were all very concise. The, the style of writing will, will vary from one writer to the next, but one of the things that they have in common is their conciseness. They, they didn't write, like, the... the you know, when I think about the opposite of the, the, you know, the scripture writers, I think about someone like Tolkien. I don't know, how many of you ever read like the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit? Yeah, that's my people right here. Anyway, and Tolkien is very descriptive in his writing and he writes and he gives you a lot of details about the most minute parts of the story. And some of them are like, well, you know, we could make a condensed version of this. You know, we could do you know, the, the Cliff Notes version or the Spark, you know, for the young people, the Spark Notes version. I don't even know if you guys have that anymore. That's probably a thing that's already come and gone. Spark Notes. Okay, okay, it's still around. All right, it's still a thing. Okay, I don't know. And, uh, but, and so the, the, the scripture writers were a little bit like that. Like they, they left, they, with, if it's in the scripture, it's important. There's not anything superfluous in here. And so what does that, what does all that mean? It means that if any detail of the story, if any detail made it into the text, it's vital. And so we have Matthew recording six verses about Jesus arranging his triumphal entry. You know, if you, if you just read this passage and you don't know the backstory and you don't know the history, the truth of what had happened and what was happening then you could just very easily picture it as if, like, Jesus, you know, was just going to Jerusalem, you know, because that's just, you know, it's the city. And so, hey, let's go into the city. And, and for some reason or another, everybody just came out and started cheering. You know, hey, that's kind of cool. Hail, the son of David. And Jesus looked around, and he's like, oh, shucks, guys. Thank you. That's so awesome of you. You guys are great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are the best. Almost as if it was just kind of just like, well, this just kind of happened. And, but listen, that's not how it happened. Jesus was in absolute control. And he absolutely arranges his triumphal entry. Jesus is deliberate. First, he sends his disciples to Bethphage to get a donkey. Now, Bethphage and Bethany were two villages that were just outside of Jerusalem, and they were very close to one another. And Jesus would have been very familiar with both. Uh, he would have been very familiar with both villages. Why? Because that's where his good friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, lived. 
And so he would have known who owned animals. He would have known where they would have been tied up or kept. Secondly, there was probably no other crowd than the, the crowds from those two villages. There was probably no other crowd anywhere else that better understood the power of Jesus. Why? Because they had just seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Like, this happened like just a couple days ago. So, when Jesus sends his disciples to get the donkey, Jesus clearly expects for them to basically walk over exactly where he told them to, and to get the donkey. And Jesus says, just make sure that you let the owners know that I am the one that needs it. Like, if there's a problem, just let them know I'm the one that needs it. So the disciples do exactly what Jesus instructed them to do. Then what? Well, verse 8 said, remember, it says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna, son of David. Then in verse 10, we're told that as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that the people were in an uproar. The city was going nuts. Now, this crowd is not from Jerusalem. They're, they're headed into Jerusalem, but they're not from there. This crowd was gathered outside of Jerusalem. Remember, because it said some of them went ahead of him and some of them followed behind him. And when does this crowd arrive? They, they arrive when the donkey arrives. Why? Because it's from Bethany and Bethphage. Jesus had arranged all of this. And in a sense, he didn't just send for the donkey. He also sent for the crowd. He is in total, absolute control of what's going on. He's making sure that when he comes into Jerusalem, he's being declared as king as loudly as possible, confronting Jerusalem and its leaders with claims of his kingship. Now, before we ask what all of this means, I think the slides are getting ahead just a little bit. The third thing for us to notice is this right here, that he, this is what he chooses. He chooses a donkey. Interesting choice to make your triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, we know because we have the benefit of this, of why he did that. But imagine you're the disciples. And yeah, you, you've heard the messianic prophecies, but it's like, well, is that detail really that important? You know, can't we get like a war horse for Jesus instead of a donkey? I mean, just for a second, put yourself in their shoes. You're happy that your master is actually doing something right finally. I mean, that's what's going on in your mind. Finally, Jesus, I mean, son of David. And G yes, that is me. Oh, Jesus, finally, thank you. We've been wanting you to finally declare yourself as the ultimate king of the world and you just now, you're just now doing it. Thank you. Finally, you've done something right. <laughs> and up to this point, because up to this point, Jesus has been very mysterious about his kingship. Every time the disciples are like, let's, let's go. Let's take the power. 
You can raise the dead. You can calm the storm. We can kick the Romans out. No problemo, Jesus. We know you can do it. And Jesus makes these like enigmatic statements about his suffering. And they don't have a clue of what he's talking about. So in their minds, they see Jesus respond this way. They're like, finally, he's doing something right. But again, like instead of of riding in on a war horse, like a victorious commander-in-chief, he chooses a donkey. The steed of a king is not a donkey. Who rides a donkey? Sancho Panza, you know? Juan Valdez. These guys, servants, ride donkeys, not kings. And I can imagine the disciples are like, finally, this is more like it. But when we get to Jerusalem, we're going to have to hire Jesus an image consultant. He does not have good instincts about this PR stuff. You know, the optics are not good. And so this whole donkey thing is not a good look. So the focus group says, you know, that he's coming off more like just like kind of a wandering guru. And some of the key words that they were using to describe Jesus were like gentle, you know, servant-hearted. So what we need to do is we need to really beef up his image as like, you know, a general who's going to kick out the Romans. You know, we're going to have to do something about this. So notice Jesus is sending a very mixed message. He's making his triumphant entry, but he's doing it while riding a donkey. So... This is what we've noticed, these three things. There's a crisis. Jesus arranges and orchestrates his triumphal entry. He's in absolute control. He's deliberate. And then number three, he chooses a donkey. So now we can ask, what does all of this mean? Well, what do we know about the kingship of Christ? The nature of the kingship of Christ is this right here. Jesus' kingship is confrontational, it's paradoxical, and it's transformational. It's confrontational, paradoxical, and transformational. Let's talk about the first one, confrontational. What does it mean that Jesus' nature was confrontational? As we're asking ourselves what all this means, we see that Jesus is on purpose Forcing the issue of his kingship. He's not reluctant in any way. He is tremendously humble, but not at all modest. Listen, there's no one like Jesus. There never has been. There never will be. And one of the things that's so unique about Jesus is that he's like, he's incredibly humble. He's got this great sensitivity. He's got unrivaled compassion, marvelous tenderness. But there is no way, shape, or form that you can call him modest. If you don't believe me, just keep reading through the rest of the chapters in Matthew. And see these confrontations that he begins to have with the Jewish religious leaders. And the confrontations that he begins to have with Herod. And the confrontation that he had with Pilate. He, he's incredibly humble, but not at all modest. He continually made these incredible claims. And in this passage, he's addressed as what? Son of David! 
the ultimate king of the world. And what does he do? He, he's not like, oh, guys, thanks. You know, you shouldn't. No, he's like, yes, that's me. That's me. Verse 15 and 16 in this passage. Flip too far. Flip too far again. That's Zechariah. Verse 15 and 16. He says, the, what did the, he says, the, um, The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what they, these, these are saying? And Jesus says, yeah, I hear exactly what they're saying. Haven't you read in the scriptures out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared, prepared praise? He's like, that praise that was prophesied, that's about me. Yeah, I'm the son of David. I'm the ultimate king of the world. Not at all modest. Incredibly humble, but not at all modest about it. And he makes, or after he makes his triumphant entry, he goes to the temple. Right? We read that. What's the temple? It's God's house. Right? This is God's house. And he goes into the temple, and he says, hey, what's going on here? This is, not, this is not how it's designed. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers, a den of thieves. And then to put it lightly, Jesus starts rearranging furniture. He starts, remember, what is the temple? It's God's house. And he starts rearranging furniture only the way the owner of the house would rearrange the furniture. How can you go into God's house and say, it's my house? Because he's saying, I'm God. I'm sent by the Father. Jesus is the most immodest person who's ever lived. <laughs> Why? Because he's always forcing his kingly identity on you. He's always confronting you with his kingship. Interestingly enough, this is a little sidebar note, this is what the enemy tries to do as well. This is what the enemy, this is what the demons try to do. They try to force their identity on you as well, and they want you to adopt what they have. The, pro, the, the, the difference is, is that they don't really have any authority. The only authority that they have is counterfeit. When Jesus confronts you with his kingship, and his authority. He's confronting you with the authority of the ultimate king of the world. When Jesus arranged his triumphant entry, he didn't just like slip into Jerusalem in the middle of the night. It was a royal processional that was making the statement, crown me or kill me. But there's nothing in the middle. 
There's no in-between. And 2,000 years later, he is still confronting every intellect and every heart. When Jesus comes to your intellect, he says, I am absolute king. You can despise me horribly as a lunatic, or you can surrender everything to me and serve me completely. But there's nothing in the middle. So intellectually, he comes at you like that, but he also comes to you like that in your heart because, you know, when you come to Jesus and you're moved and you say, I would like some help. Jesus, I would like some some inspiration. Jesus, I would like for you to be my consultant. God, Jesus, I, I would like for you to be my partner. I would like for you to be my counselor. What does he say? He says, oh. Well, I, I can be all those things to you and so much more. I can be your shepherd and I can be your master and I can be your guide and your friend and your comforter. But I won't be any of those things unless I'm your king. Either I will be your king or I will be nothing. I want all of you or I want none of you. Surrender everything to me and recognize me as the ultimate king of your life and of this world, or you can just despise me. I want you to love me, but I will not be liked. Some people hear this and they're just like, man, I just, I just admire Jesus and I pray to him sometimes, but you don't really like this whole idea of Jesus being the very center of your life. But the way it works is that you have to give him unconditional surrender. Or it's really nothing at all. There's nothing in between. J- Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he comes to every single one of us and he says, Here I am. Deal with it. There's nothing in between. This is the confrontational nature of the kingship of Jesus, and it's extreme. Jesus' kingship, man, it's awfully quiet in here. (laughs) Jesus' kingship is also paradoxical. Jesus came riding in on a what? A donkey. What's up with that? Well, Matthew, Matthew points out, the Old Testament prophecies, messianic prophecies that talked about the son of David, this messianic king, he'd come riding in on a donkey. We read that part right there in Matthew 21. That, that part is actually uh, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But what kind of king comes on a donkey? How are you going to be victorious? How are you going to beat the oppressor? And herein lies the paradoxical nature of Jesus' kingship. Any general who rides into battle on a donkey will be slaughtered. So think about that. Why is Jesus doing this? For Jesus, the son of David, this messianic king, ultimate king of the world, for him to come riding on a donkey is for him to take the position of a servant. Fast forward again just a bit to when Jesus was throwing the money changers out of the temple. Why was he doing that? Because the people 
were taking advantage of God. They were using God rather than letting God use them. And the reversal in the temple is the reason for the reversal on the road. What is the gospel in a nutshell? It's, it's this. It's this. Sin is servants putting themselves in the place of the king. But salvation was the king putting himself in the place of the servants. Right? Why are you so worried about your life? Why are you worried sick? Why are you upset today? Because you believe that you think you know best for your life. And you think you need, you, you know how your life needs to go. And you think that you can just get all the wisdom that you need and all the strength that you need to execute it. And all that is is that it's just you're putting yourself in the place of the king. Every problem, all of your misery, all of your fighting, all of your striving is caused by sin. And what is sin? It's sin is putting yourself in the place of the king. So what are we going to do about the horrible state of the world? Other religions say, hey, please stop putting yourself in the place of the king. But Christianity is like, well, that's like putting a Band-Aid on a heart wound. Christianity says, the king has come. And he has put himself in the place of the servant. Sin is humanity putting itself in the place where God should be. Salvation is God coming and putting himself where we should be, receiving the death penalty, dying for our sins. Someone in here thankful for salvation? Mm. See what Jesus is doing here? When he comes riding in on a donkey instead of a war horse, he's saying, I am king, but not like you think. What if I did free you from the Romans? What, what if that was the only liberation that I gave you? Well, you, you would probably just turn around and enslave somebody else. Why? Because it, it doesn't address the deep sense of spiritual nakedness and, and emptiness that plagues you. You've got a slavery problem that is far greater and far deeper than Rome. It's a deeper kind of, of slavery that's running your life, and it's causing all of the breakdown in the world, and I have come to give you real liberation. It's a beautiful paradox. If the gentle king, the dying king, the servant king, the king that is higher than the heavens but yet comes so low, a king riding on a donkey, if this king comes into your life, he will turn you into a gentle son and daughter. He will turn you into paradoxical royalty. Because the whole point of the gospel is that we are saved through weakness, not strength. 
Every other religion and philosophy, whether it's something that's from 2,000 years ago or whether it's something that you made up yesterday, all of it is the same. And they all say, well, I'm going to clean up my life and I'm going to do better. I'm going to save myself through strength. And that's what the disciples wanted. Save through strength. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You can't be saved until you see that you first must die. Jesus came and he died in our place, which means that we're not saved by strength. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by our mortal efforts. We're saved by his grace. And here's how this works. If you know that you're saved by the gentle king, you will be gentle. I'm telling you what, guys, this, this hits for me. Because I... examine my own life, run a diagnostic on my own life, and I see the places in my life that aren't gentle. And I just, and I think about this, I say, Jesus, give me a greater revelation of you as the gentle king. Because that's the only way that I'm going to become gentle. That's the only way that the, the, the spots in my life that I'm still, mm, I'm, a still I'm, I'm still working out my salvation, you know. I, yeah, I need to come into agreement with God's plan of sanctification in my life. But it starts with me getting a picture of who he is. When I get a picture of who he is, it changes who I am. Not just me trying harder just mustering up my own strength. No, 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 no. I just need to see Jesus in a greater way. You're going to move through life as a son or daughter of the gentle king. That's the paradoxical nature of his kingship. You know, on one hand, things might go wrong, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't deserve I don't deserve a good life. But on the other hand, you say, ah, but I'm looking at Jesus, and I see that I'm loved, and I'm accepted by him, and I'm freely welcomed by him. And therefore, this thing that's happening to me, it's not, God's not punishing me. God's actually got something good that he's doing through it. And that's why I say, then that's how you can move through life as, as a royal son or daughter of the gentle king. And that leads us perfectly to this, that Jesus' kingship is transformational. Psalm chapter 96, verse 12 and 13, says, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. Isaiah 55, 12 says, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. What we're told is, what, is that when Jesus comes back completely, when he comes back totally, when his kingship is absolutely realized, this world is going to burst forth into all of it was, all of it was actually created to be. 
all of it that it was supposed to be. You guys, the world was designed to be so much more than it has been. But on the day that the king comes, the trees of the field will clap their hands. The, the, The palms were a foretaste. They were a sign of something momentous that was happening. We've read today about Jesus' first coming and his first triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But what is it going to be like when he returns again? What's it going to be like? If the trees are going to be singing for joy and if they're going to be clapping their hands, what are you going to be like? Yeah, even more. Times 1,000. I don't remember who said this. Maybe John Wesley. You know, we have, you know, five senses. You know, it's a pretty common thing. I hope no one tries to argue against that. But, but Wesley said, when Jesus returns and the world bursts forth into everything that it was supposed to be, this is me paraphrasing. This is not a direct quote. But he said, he alluded to something like, it's going to be like we're going to have a thousand senses. It's going to be far more than, 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 than the five that we experience in our everyday life. And I hope you understand, I'm not trying to argue science. I'm, I'm trying to make a point, and that's what Wesley was trying to make a point of, is that when Jesus returns, it's transformational. And his transformation doesn't, isn't going to just start when he returns again. It's happening today in your life and my life. And it's our responsibility to surrender to it and say, yes, yes, ultimate king of the world, come and transform my life, even today. What's promised to us is absolutely astounding. On one hand, his majesty and his might are infinite. None can resist him, but on the other hand, he comes gentle. Jesus takes in the lepers and the blind and the lame and children and prostitutes. Who is this guy? Who is this king? What kind of king is this? This is the king that brings blessedness and transformation. And I'll say this. If you only get just like one side of his kingship, well, he is king. You're confronted with that. But you don't get the other side that he's the gentle king. You'll see him, but you may just still try to save yourself. You'll try to be your own Messiah and deliverer, but if you let him confront you with his kingship and then you meet him as the gentle king, the one who's saved you through weakness, then he will transform you into something beyond you can, something beyond you can imagine, more than you can ask or think. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a thinker today. This is a contemplator today. This isn't the typical, let's run around the room Palm Sunday. Let's pray together. And then let's contemplate and think about what does this mean? What does all of this mean? That Jesus' kingship 
is confrontational and paradoxical and transformational. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us. Help us to see this gentle king and help us to realize that that we're saved through weakness and not strength, that we're saved through brokenness and and, and Jesus being poured out. As we see, Lord God, that, that we are accepted through what he did, that, that, that paradoxical royalty, that boldness and humility, the, the incredible majesty, and yet unbelievable tenderness. God, we pray that we will be transformed. That all of that, that all of that that Jesus embodied would be recreated in us as his followers, as sons and daughters, uh, as, as royal sons and daughters. And God, we ask you that you would help us to do that now. In the name of Jesus, we pray.